Uh, last week I began with this EKG image and I mentioned to you the health professionals determine the health of our hearts by an EKG. They know that it is one of the most important vital signs there is. And they know that if the heart is healthy, that generally speaking, the entire body will be healthy as well. And the Bible teaches us that there are spiritual vital signs, and these are indicators of a spiritually healthy heart. On Palm Sunday, as Jesus Christ came in to present himself in the triumphal entry as Israel's Messiah, the very last thing that he did was to go into the temple and to look around. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. And let me remind you of this look that Jesus Christ gave to the nation Israel in verse 11. If you want to follow along in the chair Bible in front of you, it is page 1007. And notice with me Mark 11, 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything... As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That look on the part of Jesus was a look of examination. What he was doing was analyzing the vital signs of the nation of Israel. And he knew that the temple was the heart of the spiritual life of Israel. Therefore, what was occurring in the temple was the truth about their condition. And the Bible says about us that we are the temple of God. So therefore, what is going on in our temple reveals our condition as well. Last Sunday, as we began to look at this episode in the life of Christ, we began a message entitled, Checking Your Vital Signs. And remember this principle that we saw developing out of Jesus' words. Let's read it together. We can test our spiritual health by analyzing our spiritual vital signs. That's what Jesus is doing. And remember last week we saw the first two, that if we are spiritually healthy, we will be fruitful. And if we are spiritually in tune with the Lord, we will be real, authentic in our relationship with Him. Now this morning, Jesus leads us into the third sign of a vital spirituality. It is prayerfulness. And I want you to look with me in your Bibles at verse 20, and let's read down to verse 25. Please follow along as I read. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, 
so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Now it is Tuesday morning of what we call Holy Week or Passion Week. As Jesus enters the city with his disciples, Peter saw the fig tree that Jesus had cursed the day before. And in verse 14, the day before, Jesus had said, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And now Peter noticed that that it happened. In fact, it had happened in a most dramatic way because the Bible says here, the fig tree withered away to its roots. And so Jesus takes Peter's observation and he applies it to prayer. Jesus takes this opportunity to talk about what happened to the fig tree to teach us some very important lessons on faith and prayer. And the essential lesson is this. We can experience incredible things when we pray in faith. It's interesting that this phrase down in verse 23, when Jesus says, you can say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, that was a Jewish phrase for removing difficulties. In fact, the Jews would describe a mountain remover as a good teacher who could remove difficulties in the minds of that teacher's students. So William Barclay defines exactly what Jesus is trying to teach us here. Uh, Let me share what he said. So the phrase about moving mountains means that if we have real faith, prayer is a power which can solve any problem and make us able to deal with any difficulty. Let me read that again. The phrase about moving mountains, it means that if we have real faith, Prayer is a power which can solve any problem and make us able to deal with any difficulty. So we have to ask a question here. What do problems do to our faith? You can tell our spiritual health by how our faith reacts to problems. Healthy Christians take their problems to God in believing prayer. Elsewhere in Scripture, this concept of removing mountains means dealing with the problems of life. So may I just ask a little question? How does your faith react to the problems that you face? If you see problems primarily as obstacles, then it will be very easy to complain, to withdraw from God, and to become afraid and very discouraged. But if you see problems as opportunities, opportunities for God to solve, then your problems will draw you closer to God and your problems will become a reason for hope, confidence, and peace. So what our problems do to us says a great deal about our spiritual vitality. Many of you know that John Wesley founded the Wesleyan Methodist Church. And that incredible movement that he started has reached many of us. Many of us have been influenced by the ministry of John Wesley. And I want you to notice what he one time said. 
He said, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. Let that settle in. God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. Now, I want to say two things about that. Number one, it's a bit overstated, don't you think? God is free and God is sovereign, and he often works apart from our prayers. So this is just a bit overstated, but Wesley, by overstatement, has caught Jesus' teaching exactly. Jesus is telling us that prayer is very powerful. Now what he's actually doing then is he's giving us the conditions for believing prayer. And this morning as we continue in what Jesus has to say, that's what I want to look at. What is he saying to us are the conditions we must meet if we are truly spiritually healthy and we believe in believing prayer. Let's notice them, all right? Here's the first one. Number one, am I consistent in my prayer life? Did you notice in verse 22 how Jesus started this section? He said, have faith in God. So Jesus tied prayer to having faith in God, and that's what he saw was lacking in the nation Israel. Because they had no true faith in God, they had turned the temple, God's house of prayer, into a merchandise mart. And he discovered as he walked into the temple that day and looked around at all that we discussed last week, that they were far more interested in making money than they were in meeting with the living God. And now Jesus says this, Real faith will lead to real seeking of God and real prayer. It always leads to that result. Uh, You know, a number of years ago, the Dallas Morning News conducted a spiritual survey on a thousand people. And when they got to this question of prayer, this is what they discovered in the thousand adults that answered the survey. 87% of those adults said prayer gets results. Breaking it down into gender, 80% of men believe in prayer and 93% of women said they believe in prayer. By the way, I wondered why the difference in the genders, and maybe it's partly because women feel more dependent than we as men who often feel very self-sufficient. But when I read that survey, I thought, you know what, there's a question that's missing. What's the question that's missing? Not do we just believe in prayer, but what? Do we actually pray, right? It's one thing to say, yes, I believe in prayer. I'm a part of the 87% that believes it gets results. But if we have faith in God, we actually pray. That's the first question. Am I consistent in my prayer life? Secondly, am I persistent in my prayer life? 
True faith does not give up. And the confidence that Jesus expresses here as he teaches us about prayer means prayer keeps praying. If you were like me, you have this question. How long should I pray about something? How long should I continue to pray about something? And I think there are at least two answers that we can give to that question. Number one, we pray until God gives the answer, yes or no. That's one answer to that question. Until God answers us with a yes or no. Many years ago, as we prayed for my wife's brother, who was dying of kidney disease, it became very clear to us that God said no to our prayers. He was not going to heal my brother-in-law, David. And though we did not stop praying, our prayers had to change in their focus because God had made it clear to us, I am not going to heal David. I have a different plan. And so we had to change the nature of our prayers because God had made his will clear. Here's a second answer to this question. How do we know how long we should pray for something? Until God takes away the desire within us to pray for a certain thing. Augustine, the great church father, had a wonderful statement uh, that relates to this, and I want to share it with you because it has wonderful insight and depth. Listen to this. For your desire is your prayer, and your desire is without ceasing, therefore your prayer will be without ceasing. That is so helpful. Listen again to what Augustine said. For your desire is your prayer, and your desire is without ceasing, therefore your prayer will be without ceasing. And so as long as you have a God-given desire, you keep praying about that desire, but when God takes that desire from you, That's an indication you stop praying about that thing. Here's a third very important question. Am I putting God first in my life? Now, it's very clear in this episode that Jesus is speaking to disciples. He's talking to men who are committed to following Jesus and doing God's will. So the mountains that he talks about here, The mountains that stood in the way, they are not mountains of selfish desires, but they are mountains standing in the way of service to God. This is so very, very crucial. Because if God is not first in our lives, then we will often find ourselves praying for the wrong things and praying with the wrong reasons. That's why one of the most important verses in the Bible on this whole issue of prayer comes from Jesus' half-brother, James, in James chapter 4. Read with me verses 2 and 3 because it's very relevant here to what Jesus is teaching us. Let's read these verses together. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it 
upon your pleasures. See, this is one of the most critical texts on unanswered prayer. Why do we sometimes not have prayers answered? Well, quite frankly, it's because we are not putting God first in our life. Now, this is very important because verse 23 is perhaps one of the most twisted verses in all of the Bible on this whole issue of prayer. Look with me at what Jesus says at the end of verse 23. He says, Whoever believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Do you know this is the verse where the teaching called Name It and Claim It comes from? It's also called positive confession. And the teaching says this, if you can say it as a Christian, then you can claim it. Name it and claim it. So that interprets this verse as saying, but if you believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. Can I just stop here for a moment? I've experienced this in my own life. A friend that I love very much and is a very sincere Christian at the time that we were praying for my brother-in-law to be healed came to me and said, we have the right to claim healing because Jesus died for our sicknesses. And you have the right to claim healing for your brother-in-law. Now, I want to tell you something. That offended me. And I would never have responded in an angry way to this dear sister, but I wanted to say, what do you think we've been praying about for all these years that God would heal him? Of course we believe that God can heal. But brothers and sisters, is it always God's will to heal? No, it is not. And if we come to this verse and say we believe we can name it and claim it, we are actually contradicting the previous verse. Do you know there is a spiritual principle in the Bible that one verse of Scripture cannot contradict the other? And notice how Jesus began this teaching. He said, have faith in God. Now, faith is not only trusting God, but it is also submitting to God. So this verse cannot be contradicted by the previous verse that says, whatever you say will come to pass and it will be done for you. No, what is being taught here is very clear. We can only claim those things that are in God's will. And so many times... We don't know the will of God, do we? And so we come to God in prayer and we say, Lord, I don't know your will. This is what I would like to have happen. I request that from you, God. But if your will is different than my will, you are first, I am second. I submit to you. Notice the next question. The next question is, am I willing 
to be God's solution to the problem. Do you know often God moves mountains through our obedient actions? We become the solution to our prayer. So we're praying and asking God for something. He is putting a desire into our hearts. And all of a sudden we realize God wants me to be the solution to what I am praying for. And so I have to say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to be the solution to the problem. We could ask a few questions like this that relate to this. Number one, if we're praying for somebody's salvation, have we invited them to church? Have we taken the chance to talk to them about Jesus? I remember a number of years ago, I'd been praying for some relatives of mine to come to Christ, and it dawned on me I had never witnessed to them. So, because they live in another part of the state, I don't see them very often, I sent them a Bible, and along with the Bible, I sent my grandfather's testimony about how he came to faith in Christ and how someday I was looking forward to seeing him. I realized as I prayed for my relatives, God was asking me to do something to be a part of the solution. Maybe you're here today and you're praying for a Christian spouse. You believe it's God's will for you someday to marry, and you know that you should marry a Christian, and you're praying for a Christian spouse. Well, we, well do you go to places where you can meet Christians? Uh, do you take the opportunity to go to places where you will have uh, interaction with folks who love Jesus and are following him? You see, we have to be uh, sort of uh, engaged in what God is calling us to do. Uh, it's interesting, a few weeks ago, someone told me uh, an old joke that you all know the punchline to, and I knew the punchline to, but whenever somebody comes and tells me a joke that I know the punchline to, because I like the joke, I listen, and then when they give me the punchline, I laugh. So that's what I did. I didn't realize that that joke that they shared with me would fit perfectly right here. So I'm going to share it with you, and then we come to the punchline, which most of you know. Would you please laugh? <laughs> the joke is about this guy stranded on a deserted island, praying for God to deliver him. And an airplane came by, and he said, no, sorry, God will deliver me. And a helicopter came by. He said, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm not getting on. I've been praying and I know God will answer my prayer. Then a boat came by. And he said, no, I'm not going to get on the boat because I'm praying and I'm convinced God will answer my prayer. Well, you know what happened? He died on that deserted island. He got to heaven. He was kind of angry and upset. He said, Lord, I prayed all this time for you to deliver me. Why didn't you answer my prayers? And God said to him, Why do you think I sent you a plane, a helicopter, and a boat? You are a good audience. <laughs> you know what happens? 
sometimes we pray and then we're passive. And we think prayer means passivity. Can I make this very clear? Prayer should lead to action. Prayer should lead to action. And sometimes the reason mountains are not moved is because we believe that prayer means passivity, and so we don't seek to be the solution God is calling us to be. And that's a big mistake when it comes to prayer. Here's another one. Another question we have to ask is, am I at peace knowing God will answer? Now, did you notice that Jesus gives two conditions for answered prayer? Number one, he says, you do not doubt in your heart. The word doubt here is a very interesting word. It means to hesitate, to debate. It means to dispute and to waver. And James' half-brother, Jesus' half-brother James, very much absorbed Jesus' teaching after he became a believer. And he had, I believe, the best commentary on what it means to doubt in James chapter 1 and verse 6 and 7. Would you read this with me? Because I think it's critical for understanding what Jesus said when he told us that we are to pray without doubting. Read it with me. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now we all know what waves are like. They're up and down, they're unstable, and they're uncertain. Let me ask you, when do we doubt? You know what my answer is? when we take matters into our own hands, when we think that we have to solve the problem our way, when instead of waiting for God's solution, we will manufacture our own solution. God says when we come to Him, but then doubt that He's a God who answers prayer and He's a God who knows what is best, and we take the matter into our own hands and do something that is contrary to his will, you know what he says about that? He says we are a double-minded person. We are saying we trust God. We are saying that he will reveal his will through prayer. We are saying that we believe his will is best, but then when he reveals it, what we decide is, Lord, that's not what I had in mind. There's a better way that will solve the problem and that will make me happy, and that's the way that I'm going to take. And what does God say? God will not listen to that kind of a person. We have to trust him and believe that his answers are best, rather that's whether they are the answers we wanted or not. Did you notice also the second condition? Jesus says in verse 24, believe that you have received it 
and it will be yours. Did you notice that? When you go to God and you pray, Jesus says, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now think about this. Pray as if the answer is already sent. Pray as though God has already heard you and he has already sent the answer to your prayer. And you say, why? And the answer to that is because it already is. It already is. God already has a solution. We just don't know what the solution is. And so when we pray, we pray in faith, knowing that God is hearing and that he already has a solution and that in his time and his way, he will send that solution. And so we know that we have prayed in faith when after praying, we get up and we are at peace knowing that God is working. Back in the 1800s, there was a man by the name of George Mueller. There were many street urchins in London in the 1800s. And Mueller decided to start orphanages to care for these urchins. At one time, he had 2,000 that he was caring for. 2,000 orphans. One evening... Before bedtime, Mueller was aware that they did not have enough food for breakfast in the morning. And so this is what he did. He called his workers together and he said, let's pray about this need that's coming tomorrow morning. After two or three of the workers had prayed, this is what Mueller said. He said, now that's sufficient. Let's rise and praise God for answered prayer. Do we pray that way? Are we so confident that God is working and that he has a solution that he already knows is in mind that when we are finished praying, we say, now that is sufficient. Let's rise and praise God for answered prayer. Do you know what happened? The next morning as they got ready to go outside of the orphanage, the front door would not open. And it was clear there was something on the other side keeping that front door closed. So one of the workers ran around the outside of the building and guess what he discovered? Crates, boxes filled with food stacked in front of the front door. And as one of those workers reflected upon it, this is what he said. We know who sent the boxes We just don't know who brought them. We know who sent the boxes. We just don't know who brought them. You see, when all the other conditions are in place, I'm consistent, I'm persistent, I'm putting God first in my life, and I am praying, trusting him, then I can be totally at peace knowing that his will will be accomplished. Let's look at the last one. 
Finally, am I willing to forgive? Did you notice what Jesus said in verse 25? And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you of your trespasses. I ask a question this morning, why does Jesus connect prayer with forgiveness? I think there's a very critical answer. When we are saved, we become a part of a family, the family of God. And God treats all of us equally. And he forgives all of us when we need to be forgiven. So if we are seeking God for grace and mercy, but then we refuse to give that grace and mercy to a brother or sister who has wronged us, our heart is not beating with God's heart. In fact, we are being hypocritical. God will not approve that kind of attitude, and therefore God says he will not listen to us. By the way, do you know what this word forgive means? It means to cancel a debt. When someone has wronged us, they are indebted to us. And so when we forgive, what we are doing is we are canceling the debt, we're setting them free. But when we don't forgive them, we are holding them in bondage. We are seeking to maintain control over them and take revenge on them. In fact, a lack of forgiveness is always really revenge. It is seeking to get even. Now, I want to make something very clear here. I believe there's a difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. Sometimes we cannot reconcile with people because they will not right the wrongs that led to the breakdown. Nowhere in the Bible are we ever taught not to hold people accountable for the wrongs that they have done. So sometimes we cannot be reconciled with somebody who has wronged us, but we can always have a spirit of forgiveness. We can always say to that person, I choose to set you free by not holding a grudge against you, by not being resentful against you, by not seeking to try to get back at you. And we all know this, that if we hold a grudge, eventually, some way, that grudge will lead to retaliation. A person can never hold bitterness in their heart for long periods of time without acting on that bitterness. And so Jesus says to us, because God is a God who forgives us whenever we come to him with our sins. So even though we may not be reconciled with everyone who has wronged us, we are to have a spirit of forgiveness. We are not to hold a grudge or bitterness or resentment against them. We are to set them free by forgiving them. By the way, by the way, who else gets set free when we forgive? 
Yeah, I do. You do. Many years ago on a Friday night, I was watching 2020, the news program. And I used to watch it every single Friday evening. And one night, it's now actually about 20 years ago, there was an interesting program that caused me to set up and take notice. They had done a study of 12 incest survivors. Now, I can't imagine anything that's more difficult to forgive than incest. But here's what this study revealed. Of those who had been abused, those who finally forgave their abuser were lower in anxiety, lower in depression, higher in self-esteem, and more hopeful for the future. If I were to ask you this morning how many of us would love to be lower in anxiety, lower in depression, higher in self-esteem, more hopeful for the future, not a single hand would not go up. Those are the benefits of forgiving. But then they went on to say this, letting go of anger and resentment can reduce the chances of heart disease and decrease the risk of cancer. Those are the physical benefits of forgiveness. And you know how they concluded the program? With this statement I've never forgotten. Hate is a weapon you wield by the blade. And you know what happens when you wield a knife by the blade? You are the one who gets cut. And Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. He knew the heart of the Father. He knew the heart of the Father for the Father's family. And he knew what is not only good for us in delivering us from hate is also essential for God to answer our prayers. See how wonderful this is as we try to understand how prayer really works in our lives. This morning, let's just read these questions, shall we? It's one thing for us to hear them. It's another thing for us to let them sink deep into our lives. And so would you join me? Let's read them together. This is Jesus' teaching on how prayer is to work in our lives. Let's read them together. Am I consistent in my prayer life? Am I persistent in my prayer life? Am I putting God first in my life? Am I willing to be God's solution to the problem? Am I at peace knowing God will answer? And am I willing to forgive? Let's bow together, shall we, and thank the Lord. Blessed Savior, you are not only a wonderful Savior, but you're an amazing and wonderful teacher. And we thank you that you have brought us into the very heart about how prayer is to truly work. And you desire us as we develop intimacy with our Father through this wonderful means of speaking to Him. 
that it would bring peace to our lives, it would bring direction to us, it would bring a sense of commitment to our God, a sense of waiting upon Him and trusting Him. And then as we recognize what His heart is truly all about, exhibiting that same heart to others. How wonderful all of this is, Lord, today. Help us now today to be molded and made after your perfect and wonderful will by the power of your Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.